Welcome to Food and Beverage Live, a division of Food and Beverage Magazine. If you're unable to watch this entire interview, you can watch the replay or listen to the podcast by going to fb101.com. Just click on FBTV tab, and it'll take you straight to our YouTube channel. Thank you, and we'll be right back after these promos. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, or wherever fine books are sold. Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. And without further ado, I'm going to pop a cork because it's the most fitting way to welcome our guest today. Yes, he's a living legend. Yes, he's the person for whom many people credit the idea of understanding, creating, and appreciating something that took us all by storm. The idea of California cuisine, of course, is one that revolutionized fine dining and food appreciation in America. But that is just such a small part of the role that Jeremiah Tower has played in our culinary lives, in the culture of the culinary world in which we inhabit today. He gave us a legacy of excellence. And today, as we are on the verge of Food 3.0 and redefining what the future of food is going to look like, we are so incredibly fortunate because he has agreed to come and speak with us today and bring his connoisseurship, his discernment, his vision, that prescient quality that made him study underwater architecture, thinking of how we would live in a future that had not even begun to reveal itself. He's an expert at that. We need him now, arguably, in my mind, more than ever before. If we have any hope, of having any kind of meaningful culinary culture that is the source of hospitality and conviviality for another generation to enjoy, we have to, in fact, turn to the masters. And for that, I raise my glass with enormous gratitude to the one and only Jeremiah Tower, who joins us today from his home in the beautiful Merida, Mexico. Bienvenidos. Welcome and thank you, Chef. It's so wonderful to see you again. How are you? Very fine, but I'm looking at your glass and getting very thirsty. You, my friend, I have to tell you, I am sure you have champagne and it's rude of me not to offer you a glass. The circumstances prevent it, but the next time we're even in close proximity, I will drive immediately to your home with one. Absolutely. You helped to popularize the use of the bubble as a celebratory note of welcoming and conviviality. I don't think there's anybody who has done more in the last 50 years for the cultivation of conviviality than you have. And I wanted to start with that. Can, Boy, you, thank talk, you. can you talk to us about why, not only is conviviality important, but why is it more important than ever at this moment in time? Because I think we've become, the pandemic has made us estranged and unsure a little uh, hesitant on our feet. I was in a hotel last year in uh, Los Angeles. I went into the registration and they said, you'll have to wait. And, well, of course I have to wait. I don't expect, you know, to register right away. There are people in front of me or they're busy. And so after five or six minutes, I said, well, there's somebody else who could help me. And the person said, I told you, you have to wait. I thought, wow, 
that's like going into a restaurant and they say, do you have a reservation? I mean, that's not the way to greet people, especially, I mean, I understand that the pandemic made us all crazy, but all the more reason to figure out how we're going to re-engage with the public and hospitality. What are the things you've observed that we've lost during the pandemic period where 110,000 restaurants closed that are not the obvious things that everybody can see? You have a very keen knowing, a very keen eye about the most important things that are oftentimes the lesser observed, the more important, but maybe more finesse or humanity. What are the things that we lost that we might even not know that we lost during the pandemic as an industry? We've lost that comfort around people, you know, that I think, I mean, I forgot how to talk to people. I was being interviewed two hours, I mean, two years into the pandemic, and I was in a big group in Mexico City, and I couldn't remember how to even talk to a group. So it's that body language in hospitality where you're relaxed. I mean, it's a very, very difficult job in the best of worlds when you have to greet 300 people a night and make each one of them feel that they're the first people and the last people you want to see. I mean, to be welcoming and friendly and open, and that's very difficult. It takes a lot of energy in, in the best of times, and these are not. So you have to, I mean, stand in front of a mirror for an hour a day at home and practice how to say to somebody, without asking them, what's your name? Do you have a reservation? <laughs> I, I mean, if I opened another restaurant, I would have to reinvent how to greet people at the door. Not reinvent, just do it in the old way. That you, in of- fact, reinvented the way to welcome guests. You reinvented a, an industry that had existed for a couple hundred years. You made it modern, you made it meaningful, in its time and place, and you made it all matter by making things like your guests know that they mattered. People that have had the opportunity to visit stars to this day say that it was the place that was the most vibrant, alive expression of what our industry could be. Would you take us back and take us to your origin story as a host? I was probably eight years old. It was my mother's birthday. We were in London at the famous restaurant Mirabelle. And we walked in and I hadn't been there before. And the maitre d' came over to me first and said, good evening, Master Tower. And I was blown away. And my parents thought that was so cute, you know, um, to have greeted me before because he, was, he wasn't stupid. He knew exactly the way to my parents' heart. Then... Later on, somebody dropped a tray of glasses. And instead of, you know, usually in a restaurant, everybody would look up in America and they would clap and cheer and everything. He made one gesture of his hand and the entire staff froze and no one went near those broken glasses. And then when everyone went on with their conversation and forgot what had happened, the staff went over and cleaned them up. And I thought, now that's control. Because he's thinking about the public, about his customer is not thinking about the restaurant or him or the staff. Brilliant. What does it mean to be a host? Well, if you're being paid to do it, you're giving a dinner party. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say there's, there's at least three ways. Yes. And I'm going to call to mind people that made me understand what it meant to be a host. The first is Mrs. Leah Chase who made it very clear that when you were here, you were in my house. She had a grace and a strength that to this day, I think is unparalleled. Right. There were people like Oscar Tucci, who along with people like Sirio Maccioni and Tony May represented a generation who knew how to welcome. You yourself are a legendary host who is in the business of welcoming people. And then there's the actions that any of us live, 
when we welcome anyone into our home. I'm really curious about how you would think it was most important for us to understand the role of the host in the future of food. Well, I think you have to really want to do it, of course. But, you know, I remember Sirio Maccioni, who I learned from. I watched him like a hawk and learned from him. One day he walked in and he took me and sat me against the bunkette in the back <clears throat> between, uh, I mean, I forget it was Secretary of State and you know, somebody from CNN. And everybody, and he displaced the editor of Women's Wear Journal. So everybody in the room looked at me. I was 35 years old or something and said, who the hell is that? You know, And he loved that. It electrified the room because I displaced one of his daily great customers and everyone could, no one could think of anything except what was I doing there sitting next to the Secretary of State. The other great one was um, from Harry's Bar, yeah. Cipriani, an amazing character. When I, after Meals on Wheels, it was late one night, we were exhausted. We were smelling. We hadn't had time to go back to the hotel. We were, but I had my Armani with me, you know, so I put that on. And I told my staff, get in back of me and don't look up and don't show yourself. I went up and the maitre d' came out and said, I'm sorry, we're full. I looked over his shoulder and there was Harry Cipriani in the back and I caught his eye. He waved to me and came over and led us, me and my four miserable, dirty, smelly cooks, right to the center of the dining room, sat us down. And then he didn't say a word to his maitre d' or the staff, not a word, but he served me himself. And that was all he had to say. I love the finesse, the class of that. What does that do in the transaction of human experience to the person who is the guest? And why does that matter? It makes you feel very special for a moment and then you can completely relax and enjoy it. No matter what happens, you're captivated as of that first moment. So it's the first few minutes when you get into a place, when you're coming in, when you're greeted, that sets the tone for the whole night. And then it doesn't really matter. The service doesn't have to be perfect. The food doesn't have to be perfect. You've been greeted perfectly. That's the meaning of hospitality. Is that the most important ingredient that we seem to have lost? That's it. That's it. I mean, you have to wait. Well, I know I have to bloody wait. <laughs> I just walked in. But that's not something you should be told. But she didn't hand you a glass of champagne while you ate either. And that's something that I imagine if I had ever wandered into stars, you would have had the arrangement that that would have happened within seconds. One night I was working the door and <clears throat> a naked homeless person streaked through the restaurant, went from the front door to the back door. Halfway through, in the middle of the dining room, I stood there and I said, because if I hadn't done something, spectacular, you know, that would have ruined the evening. So I stopped him and said, get this man a glass of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> he was, <laughs> you know, there was a stunned silence. And I, and I had my hand on his arm and I thought I'm going to have to cut my hand off or wash it very well in a few minutes. <laughs> and then he was so terrified that he ran out the back door. <laughs> the whole restaurant stood up and applauded and screamed. And it was the, one of the best nights at Stars. One of the best nights at Stars could be any of the nights at Stars. I don't think there was a night that didn't rise to the level of legendary. Um, when you set out to create Stars, and there's a reason I want to I want to go down this path. What was the dream, and how close did you come to realizing the dream, or did it the experience exceed your dream? The dream was, you know, the old. When I was growing up I and mean, as a kid, you know, there's great restaurants like Lou Charles in New York, um, but also much later, the French bistros like La Coupole and Bersolatois and those. One night I walked into Bersolatois, usually, you know, I was there at midnight or something, and there were two women, two models in the front banquet, right in the entrance, and they had a, an enormous imperial tower of shellfish, and they were dressed they were beautiful. They were beautifully dressed. They had long red fingernails. And they were scooping the crab out of the cloth with his long fingernails. 
and wiping it off under their tongues as they drank champagne and ate the crab. And I thought, I want a restaurant just like this. That was my vision. Not only did you have that, you had that and more. When you brought that dream to life in the time and place, it had been unheard of, frankly. You, of course, knew that such a thing could exist but the rest of the world didn't know what we were longing for until you gave us a glimpse of the most glamorous, delicious possibility. Johnny I want to use that. I want to use that as a moment to say we are at the precipice of another moment where we have no idea about what the possibility is for us. How can you take this moment and help us understand what our collective culinary call to action is? The problem of the world, of us in the restaurant business, also hotel business, <clears throat> right now because of the pandemic and shipping and the Ukraine war and everything else is ingredients. And it always has been, you know, getting the perfect ingredients. Now you have to be practically a magician with a, right. taking a rabbit out of, out of a top hat to get the ingredients. So <clears throat> that is the clue. It's always been the truth. And right now, that is our biggest problem for other reasons, just than the usual finding the perfect ingredient. So it's not about us as a star, as a famous person, as a famous chef anymore. It never really was. It was like, who could find the best ingredients, present the ingredients as the stars of the evening, not me, 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 me. And so now... I think people will appreciate as whether they've got food shortages or less money or something. So a perfect piece of fish. I had one the other day in Mexico City with maybe the best fillet of fish I've ever had. It was just simply cooked and perfectly cooked. <clears throat> and I was in heaven. And I said to the chef, you know, I've been here for years and I've never had a piece of fish that expertly presented, cooked and presented without any fanfare. Two ingredients, three ingredients on the plate, the fish, marinade, and some olive oil, lime juice. And I, and I just thought, okay, the courage, the guts to present something like that now instead of, you know, dot, 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 and schmear, schmear, and 14 different yeah. ingredients. So those 14 rare ingredients have now become less important than they ever were. Now, is, <clears throat> so I get a piece of responsible fish on the plate, know how to cook it perfectly and leave it at that. When I hear you say that, we can understand that, but I hear the word irresistible. I yes. think one of the things you were expert at, at stars, at Chez Panisse, and to this day, one of the things I've always learned from you was watching you and how you talked about, delivered, and appreciated the need for irresistible. I've learned more in my career in reading your words and understanding the way that you do food, uh, that you make food, how you make food your art, how you make it your expertise. Because it always, to me, seems that you're aiming for irresistible. Can you talk about how that is important to you, if it is, and how you have, over the years, developed your sense of irresistible and use that as a principle if, in fact, you have? I, I hate to put words in your mouth by asking a question that's kind of a leading question. Right, right. But, I, but, I, but I, <clears throat> I, can't, I can't avoid the fact that I have seen in the work that you've given the world the words that you've given the world, the food that you've given the world, uh, that you've been a virtual one-man masterclass in Irresistible, your entire career. Well, when I was 16, I was having lunch with my Russian uncle and some other Russians, of, of uh, including the one of the best friend of the guy who killed Rasputin. So it was a pretty cool crowd. And the he wanted to tell the story to me because I was 16 and he was 90 want to teach me one thing to learn from him, from that old, amazing imperial czarist world. And he said, he told the story of them talking about what was decadence. And they all talked about the obvious things. And then 
Yusupov, the young man who killed Rasputin, said, nonsense, my dear friends, the most decadent thing in the world is to drink Chateau de Kim and eat roast beef together. Well, I then couldn't wait to get back and do that and speak about irresistible. There's something about the simplicity of something so grand as an old Kim and aged roast beef. It's one of those marriages that makes you fall off your chair. It's like, you know, a shot of Zubrovka of buffalo grass vodka with a buttered English muffin covered with caviar. You shoot the vodka and when it slightly burns you throughout, you eat the throat, you eat the caviar and all that butter and sour cream richness, you know, soothes your throat and you, again, practically fall off the chair. Irresistible is the most powerful food and hospitality emotion we know for me. It doesn't need to be the most expensive thing in the world. Anything can be the most irresistible. It can achieve the irresistible, which I think is important um, to imagine. Is it true that given where we are in the world today, that we need to focus on the fundamentals, the essentials that include things like hospitality, conviviality, and irresistible? Are they going to be the cornerstones of our future of food, or am I merely just too nostalgic and dusty and old-fashioned clinging to those things because I was privileged to have that extraordinary experience in my life? Where are we going? Honey, no one's less dusty than you are. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen you in a while. (laughs) That's very kind of you to say this is... (laughs) The... Let's say that honest directness, thinking, for instance, we're on our way in Spain to a very famous restaurant and, you know, the the host had lots of money, so it was going to be quite an amazing lunch. And we passed this place with the two women cooking octopus in two old steel drums over an open fire in front of the restaurant, steam coming up, you know, it was a cold November day. I said, stop the car. So we stopped and they took an octopus out and they just hacked it up on a piece of old cutting board, threw sea salt on top, and we ate that, and then olive oil, and we ate that with, you know, the local cheap white wine. That was so much better than the very, very fancy, very expensive Spanish restaurant we were headed to. That honest directness, without any sort of promotion. So what we've forgotten is that we're promoting the chef's food so much that just go back to the ingredient, have faith in the beauty and the magnificence and the power of the ingredient, and that's all you have to do. You don't have to tell them your name at all. You know, name the octopus. <laughs> or the bloke who scooped him up. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's interesting you chose the octopus example because they're among the most um, sentient, brilliant creatures that we don't realize are as smart as they are. I think that's absolutely a wonderful example for us. Um, would you talk a little bit? I, 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 we have a, an array of covers and books. Um, we were honored to have you on the cover of Food and Beverage magazine. I think you're overdue. We've got to have you back on again. Um, but you've also had a really important career in teaching us and inspiring us. And one of the books uh, that you wrote um, had to do with manners. And I have to ask you um, about table manners uh, with the subtitle, How to Behave in the Modern World and Why Bother? Um, I think this is a book that if you have a young person in your life, if you don't give that to them for their graduation from middle school, high school, or college, you've done them a terrible disservice. If you have a friend that didn't get this given to them at the graduation from high school or college. (laughs) You have to go back and give it to them now. I believe everybody needs this uh, book. And it is clearly something that you feel was important enough to share with the world in an effort that took a lot of time and energy and, and intention on your part. Would you talk about table manners and where it belongs in food 3.0 as we head into the future of food? 
So I told my an editor at the publishing company whose idea it was to write a book like this, for me to write one. And I said, you know, nobody, why man at table matters? Nobody cares anymore. And he said, that's precisely why we want the book. And I said, okay, I'll write one, <clears throat> but it'll never have a moment in it of your grandmother going like that with the finger and saying, no, 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 no. I mean, my grandmother used to wash the soap after I washed my hands. That's not menace. That's, you know, that's cruel. So I said, I'm never going to say you can't do this. I'm just going to say, if you do it this way, you'll get the kind of life and or job and everything that you want, that you've been thinking about. This is the way to get it. Real manners, I mean, are thinking about the other people, not yourself. So they yeah. said, for instance, you can't talk about politics or sex or whatever at the dinner table. And I said, excuse me, those are the three most fascinating subjects of all. Of course you have to talk about them at the dinner table. If you're talking sex, just don't talk about your sex life. Talk about everybody else's, you know. <laughs> this is why I love having you at my table regularly, because it is always one of the most delicious and satisfying, nourishing and fascinating conversations. But let's go to the book table manners. If there was one or two elements, ideas, principles, or I hate to use the word rules, but guides from the book that you would really hope everybody takes into the future of food. What are the things from the book that you hope that we really pay attention to and take with us as we go into the future of food in all its forms? Again, not to think about yourself, that yeah. I'm going to impress these people with what, you know, the, the grandmother's valuable plates that I have or the baccarat or whatever it is. And when you're putting a dinner party together, you have to think about, okay, is somebody flying in from someplace? Are they going to be late? Are they jet-lagged? Are they feeling fluish? You think about that. So you, you make a feeling. You wrap an envelope of hospitality about these five or six people thinking what they might be experiencing when they get to your room. And you put that evening together and you have, and that's truly manners, thinking about other people. You put that together and you've got a party that everyone will talk about for forever. I can't help but think about everything that you've talked about today and the way that those are the elements from which we create great, everlasting food memories. Can you talk about memory as it relates to these experiences of hospitality? How cognizant are you when you make these moments that you're making food moments and memories for people? Can you talk about the idea of memories in a present tense and as a host? Yes, I, I mean, I never intentionally think about this is going to be a memory that they'll have forever. I draw on my own memories. I told the story about, you know, Mirabelle and that amazing maitre d', uh, about Harry Cipriani. That is what inspires me and encourages me. And I want to recreate that moment when Harry Cipriani, from all his memories and experience of the years owning the restaurant in Venice and in New York, um, he knew exactly what to do, gently, with class, perfect timing, all of that. I mean, so that's the role of memory for me, is to remember those moments and try and recreate the magic of the best of that memory. Of and all the books that you've done, of all the recipes that you've shared with the public, right? everyone will have one or two favorites. And they may even be tied to a food memory of how those recipes came to life, either in your house or in mine. Um, would you talk about some of your favorite recipes from your books and how you hope that in the future of food, they will find a new place at someone's table? Maybe yours, maybe mine. Right. Well, I'll just go back to memory for a minute. I remember a day in Marrakesh. And it was late, you know, I'd sort of gotten lost and I wandered back to my hotel and it was, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, just very hot, just birds and dogs barking were the only noises. And I walked into my hotel and I said, you know, is there anything to eat? And the owner of this little country hotel had just gotten out of bed and said no, but he walked into the garden and picked some tomatoes, cut them up, put them on a plate, put olive oil and salt and bread on the table and a bucket of cold beers and said, please, 
your lunch, don't wake me up. And of course, in that quiet afternoon with just, as I say, the birds and the dogs barking and those tomatoes still hot from the sun. You know what tomatoes are like when they've just come from the sun. They've got that perfume that is amazing. That was one of the best meals I've ever had. So I think of that all the time. It doesn't ever have to be more complicated than that. So, do you do you ever tire of people when you meet them talking about memories that you gave them, food memories that you were instrumental in providing in their lives? Well, if they're complaining, I might get tired. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine they'd bring it up. You know that time. <laughs> no, I can't imagine that that ever would happen. But. Um, I'm really interested in how people respond to the gift you've given them over the years of these extraordinary meals and moments. Well, especially at Stars. I mean, there were some amazing evenings at Japanese, but <clears throat> Stars was more magic because it had all the components, you know. Um, no, I never get tired of that. So then I you won't mind if I tell you about how when I was invited to Ojai, California, the home of a friend who was a movie producer and who along with my, my best friend um, with whom she went to college, right. uh, we created a meal almost entirely out of your offerings from your books. And we started with a consomme that had originated in Paris in the salons of uh, Miss Alice B. Toklas. Right. And then we moved on to it's the a magic ingredients with, yeah, well, I was, and in this time and place where States all over the country are making it possible for us to revive that recipe. I would love nothing more than for you to do a pop-up and invite us just for simple <laughs> consomme, but I digress. But one of the meals um, components, we, we roasted oysters on an open fire and we did a roast beef that had been marinating in, I believe it was, you know, vodka and good sea salt. And, and we really, yes, yes. It, it remains in a, in a lifetime of great meals, uh, a highlight. Not just because the flavors were so extraordinary, but by virtue of what that empowered us to create. You have been instrumental in inspiring and empowering generations of food lovers. In that role, we're going to go back to the conversation about the future of food. Right. In that role, how can you inspire and empower us at the dawn of Food 3.0 as we all become architects of the future of food? Again, I'll say, have the courage to do what comes from your heart, not what magazines are showing you, what famous chefs are doing, the, the Food Network, that the internet is showing you with it because everyone's food is now starting, to, every chef's food is starting to look exactly the same, whether it's in Paris or Sydney or Rio or New York or San Francisco. But I mean, the food that I read about another restaurant in North of Spain the other day that is famous for its tobo. And he brings the fish, the whole fish to the table. Oh, wow. And he cooks it on the charcoal in a sort of, in one of those fish, baskets you know and then he starts carving it and it takes him there are four pieces of the fish and he says this is the flesh that's over the guts it has one flavor this is the fish that's over the top of the backbone it has one flavor this wow. is the flesh from around the neck it has a different flavor now that kind of <clears throat> it's like malman and you know yeah. cooking yeah. ribs of beef hanging above the fire <laughs> That, that kind of knowledge and directness and simplicity and directness is inspiring. Putting 15 ingredients with a schmear or two and lots of little dots around the plate uh, is not. That's just copying everybody. Think it's, about almost, it's almost like honoring the wives of the Portuguese fishermen of Provincetown and in, in Fall River in New Bedford. I grew up in New England and I grew up with the bountiful... Uh, seafood that it's known for. But when some of the fanciest places offered something delicious, it was exquisite. But some of the best and most delicious things came from places that took a lesson from the wives of the fishermen. 
because yes. they knew what was really delicious. The cheeks of the cod, those giant, tender, nice. sweet, oh. And of course, they kept them for themselves in, in the fishing shops and you could go to a diner up in Gloucester and have those. Is that moment right for us to revisit? That's exactly what it should be now. So give people confidence again in ingredients, which are going to be, have always been important, but now are going to become rare, difficult, expensive, all of that. So ingredients are now, because of the things that have been going on in the last couple of years and going on now, will be uh, king again, you know, because they're going to be so... It's, in other words, let me say it another way. It's going to take more, more talent than ever to get those ingredients and put them simply on the plate. It's not a question of a rich chef just ordering whatever he wants anymore from all over the world. I don't want to talk about what we're doing wrong. I want to talk about what we're doing right. What are we doing right at this moment in time? What about the modern, about-to-happen world of future of food that excites you and really energizes you and inspires you to get in the kitchen or try things out? The directness that you were just talking about the restaurants in the best restaurants in Barcelona and the north of Spain that have the courage just to present their talent lies in getting that ingredient into the restaurant, looking after it because, you know, a lot of ingredients die in the walk-ins of restaurants. Yeah. So um, finding it, keeping it, presenting it, that's always going to be the inspiration and more important than ever. So, That's great advice for chefs and cooks, restaurateurs. Translate that into how important our self-awareness, self-confidence, and, and sense is to us as eaters. How do we start to trust ourselves again and knowing what delicious really is, what irresistible actually tastes like to us? How do we do that? Uh, to find the, those benchmarks again. Yeah, yeah. To find the benchmarks. Um, <clears throat> well, Warm tomato in the sun. Yes. Go down to the uh, boats in Gloucester, you know, get some fish and take it home and just steam it. Pour olive oil all over it or use it or something, you know. I mean, get that, get that knowledge and appreciation of the best the world has to offer. And it doesn't have to be from, you know, the most expensive market in New York or Chicago. Just take that, it, you know, farmer's market, go to a farmer's market, look at the best things there, take them home and cook them simply and, and revel in how perfect those ingredients are. You've just charged us to revel. <laughs> it, it's, it's stopping me in my tracks because I don't know that I've had a moment of revelry in the last two years. As I watched friends close their restaurants, as I've missed my own family and friends, right. I've missed cooking for people. What a stunning, simple thing to quest for, a moment of revel. Absolutely. Does food still excite you? Does food still inspire you? Absolutely, I was in the, in the market, the main market in Mexico City a couple of weeks ago and there's a woman there who has a stall called Paris, Paraiso. And, you know, I said, I've heard you have wild mushrooms in Mexico City. Do you have any? She said, yes, of course. I have. And the man around the corner. So she took me around the corner and said, he has the morels. I have the chanterelles. And then we have the amanita over here. And they were the best morel I've ever seen in my life. The best chanterelle I've ever seen in my life at the main market in Mexico City because we come from the mountains an hour away from Mexico City. Wow. And, you know, I, I was giving a, I'd been asked to cook for a very important person in Mexico. And I just did a ragu of mushrooms. And then everyone, I mean, these were very powerful, very rich people at the table. And they had never had such glorious mushrooms just by themselves like that. And when I saw them a month later, they were still talking about them. That's what I mean about the ingredients, when they're the right ones. It's the benchmark. 
You don't have to do much. Just let the ingredients shine and you will shine. It's your discernment and connoisseurship that makes that statement resonate and ring like a beautiful gong. Um, I was thinking of you within the last six months when I was interviewing um, uh, my friend uh, Dennis, who has a company called The Mush Hub. He's the king of mushrooms. And I met him on the Clubhouse social audio app. And he and I formed an instant infatuation over the topic of mushrooms. He said something that made me think of you nearly instantly. He wow. said something to the effect of 650 million years ago, we descended from the kingdom of fungi. And that of all the things in the world that we haven't been able to get right, it's reconnecting with how important mushrooms are for our nutrition, for our dynamic nutritional vibration of the food, of our connection to the earth, to connection to one another, that in fact, they were so important that you chose that ingredient for the most important people you've cooked for recently, speaks to the fact that it was a good impulse that I thought of you when you were talking about that. Uh, would you talk about what some of the things that you think we should pay better attention to, more attention to, or first attention to in the future of food? What should we as we're looking for these ingredients, where should we go to pay a little bit better attention to have a richer, more delicious, more nutritious, more soulfully nutritious food experience? Well, stop buying and eating and using processed food completely, yeah. 100%. It is so poisonous. I mean, the universe is fairly poisonous, so, but we, all we can do is get as far away from it as possible. Farmers markets, you know, I mean, not, I mean, how many people can grow stuff in their backyard anymore? But you can go to farmers markets and support those people. That's the way to do it. And that's where the inspiration comes. Not everybody can go to the market in Barcelona. If you do, you'd be you know, floating on up in the clouds for months. Yeah. Uh, that market, I, I walked in there and I changed from the hotel, rented an apartment so we could cook. Little fava beans and white asparagus. A friend of mine just went to Paris and spent a week eating white asparagus. But real white asparagus, not the thin, emaciated, nasty, woody ones that you get in the U.S. Why so do people you, think thin asparagus is a good thing? Because they're ignorant. <laughs> they sell a lot of it at the grocery store. It makes me very and disappointed. Then they, and then they grill it. Grilled thin asparagus. I mean, I might as well eat, you know, a straw. I give mine basically a, a, a college dorm hot shower. 90 seconds, <laughs> no more. Yeah. And I put it on a, a raft of a rubbed garlic toast and I'm, I'm oh, transported yes. back to my grandmother's table where she would course. make garlic toast asparagus for me when I was little. And to this day, nothing is as delicious. And when I make it for friends, they have the same re re reaction I did when I was seven or eight. I'm like, can I have some more, please? It's just that good. Being reminded of what good tastes like is, is worth spending a moment or two right now at the future of food doorstep. Um, of all of those things, what are one or two things you would this season, this time of year with with all the holidays coming up, with Passover, with Easter, with the, the bountiful spring beauty that's coming, what are things that you want to make sure we calibrate our sense of what is delicious to that's in the market that might be better than expected? Well, I mean, this is the time to reestablish your benchmarks. Go out hunting for those experiences. Recharge yourself with what a great asparagus, a great artichoke. And coming up, not right now, but you know, that white peach season. I don't mean a white peach in the supermarket. I mean a white peach that was picked from a tree when it was ripe and you can find it in a farmer's market. And you, right there, suck into that, you know, and you go, I remember what it's like to be alive. That's the benchmark. I, I, I personally have a peach fetish. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a time of year where you really should just leave me alone in my kitchen. <laughs> And if you were to come over to my house, I would make you my my brilliant peaches with um, 
basil and uh, tomato oh. and to oh, me yes, that's yes. one of the great combinations uh and absolutely uh, then that's that's living rich if you'd be good enough to you've been so incredibly generous with your time i know we're running a little bit over and if it's convenient could we take one more spin around the block and visit a couple more places that i want to go with you absolutely um, we have to talk about The Last Magnificent. And I think there's something so incredibly prophetic about the title. Uh, but it introduces a word that I think is critically important for us to visit, magnificent. What it means, what that project means at the moment it was created, your collaboration with Anthony Bourdain. Right. And what the residual gift to the culinary world that project is, both in book form and the film that is now widely available for people to see. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to spend time watching this movie. Can we talk about what, first of all, the word magnificent means to you and how it became the sort of connection for this project to Maypole around well, of course, that was a quote taken from Lucius Beebe, who was one of my heroes, you know, who lived in San Francisco. And Did lived... you meet him? No, no, he died before I got I was going to say, he was... But the stories about him, you know, I mean, the sort of randy dandy of the boulevards. You know? <clears throat> and Jim Villas knew him, and of course, I oh, wow. adored Jim Villas. But the title's slightly embarrassing, but it was a very good marketing, uh, a very good marketing title so they and they did a great job i didn't you know when i when i they gave me the first interview i said there are two things i demand one that i have nothing to do with the way this film turns out other than you're directing me and we take the high road with alice waters and they said you know those are the two things we were going to demand of you so we sat back drank lots of champagne enjoyed ourselves and uh, made the movie. Uh, the ending looks, it's a bit sad for me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a sad person. I certainly wasn't sad then. But I wanted to show that being a famous chef is not all glamour, you know. I mean, it's, of course, it's, you know, going to Venice and eating with Harry Cipriani, but it's also you know, cleaning out the sewers on a Friday night when they back up in the basement. So I wanted to tell that story of how I became so famous and successful. In, in a way, in actual, because my actual story, it's not what most people would think. Everyone probably thought it was just a straight tra trajectory from culinary school to fortune. And of course it never is. We were lucky enough to have uh, Anthony Bourdain on the show multiple times. And over the years, you've been on with us to know the kinds of vibes that those late nights used to create and anything oh, yeah. could happen and often did. Often did. Um, I'm really curious about how you were approached by him about the project, because underneath, uh, he had enormous respect for our community. Right for our profession. And I and I want to make sure people understand that he was a great student of our profession and he had great respect for the role that we played in the in the realm of service. And I think one of the underappreciated aspects of what he gave us was how we began to see and respect service in the service industry which we are. In, the, in all the forms uh, that it takes. I'm really interested to see and hear how it came to be that he got you to say yes. I first met him when I went into his restaurant on uh, in Manhattan. What, what was the, yes. And I was there and he knew I was. And I came out and I said, he said, what do you think? I said, this is a terrible restaurant. Because <laughs> I knew him. I'd read Kitchen Confidential, so I just thought, you know, give it back to him. So this is a it was a mediocre restaurant, and he was not a great cook. At least people in the kitchen that day were not doing a great job, and they were screwing up steak, steak frites, you know, and I thought, oh, well. And he roared with laughter. He thought, I mean, we get along right after that. He thought that was very cool. And I, would, I didn't say it 
I was laughing when I said it, but I, he knew I meant it. So and there had to have been truth in that. Yes, and he knew it. He knew it was true. But so years later, and he had read California Dish, which was the first book that later became Starting the Fire. Um, he went to the his director, who was doing all his TV shows, uh, Lydia. Lydia. Tenalia, and she said she read the book and, and thought, oh, my God, what an arrogant little prick <laughs> about me. He said, no, 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 he's not, and we should do this film. And so she then met me and interviewed me, and the hour interviewed went into seven hours and several bottles of champagne, and at the end she told CNN, I want to do it. So they did it. That's how it happened. Our industry is known as the service industry. Food and Beverage Magazine is in service to our industry. Our 14 million readers each month are the boys and girls, the men and women who make up every dimension of our industry. Right. My title in the masthead may read editor at large, but the truth is I am so privileged to just merely bust the tables to have in any way the honor of serving alongside the platoon of men and women in our industry and in our magazine and in the people we serve, this incredible opportunity. It is, it is the true honor of my lifetime. It's a great industry, wonderful people. Can you speak to how important service is at a time when everyone seems to wanna be the star of the show? Yes, there are no real, I mean, maybe at the Four Seasons with Julian Nicolini and people like that. Uh, other than that, there were no real, or Tony May, no real stars of the service side of the restaurant. Though, in fact, you know, <clears throat> you can have great food if the service is not good, doesn't work, and vice versa. But I'd rather have great service than slightly bad food any day. <laughs> we can always, we can always go home and, you know, Make an omelet, truffle omelet if you're lucky, but just a plain omelet beautifully made with great eggs and a glass of champagne, yes. But bad service will leave you annoyed, distressed, depressed, uh, and, and annoyed that you spent money on bad service. So I think yeah. service is much more important. The idea of us being in service to one another in the industry is something that I hope we take moving forward. Let's go back to your Harvard days where as an undergraduate, you had a dream of designing a world that no one else had conceived of. There are now people around the world creating uh, underwater architecture, but you had a dream to be an architect. Yes. And in this moment in time, you are an architect again of the future of food. What is the idea? you're going to design the future of food around. Somebody might ask you to design a home around a doorknob or a tile or a, a lot of land or a view. What are you going to design the future of food around? Well, let me tell you what I'm working on now. I expect to get the contract any minute, but we've been working on it for the last six months. For the American, for the Aspen Institute of Mexico, based in Mexico City, I'm working with them to document the authentic cuisine of the regions of Mexico. Not wow. just, yes, and we're going to film it and write books about it and everything, but completely documented. And it's not about chefs, it's about the people who grow the products and cook them, what they eat, and that's Mexico. And my final message at the meeting the other day, I said, you know what? When it, a cook, a pizza cook in Naples is making a pizza margarita. Does he know to say thank you, Mexico? When a little girl's eating a chocolate bar in Jakarta in Indonesia, does she say thank you, Mexico? When a Frenchman is cooking French fries in Paris to go with his steak au poivre, all those potatoes or pomme Anna, does he say thank you, Mexico? All when a chef in Sichuan in China is making his prawns with chili peppers. 
Does he say thank you, Mexico? That's what we're going to do. I want to make the benchmark to show the world what a magnificent cuisine, equal to Chinese or French or Italian, that Mexican food is. And I don't mean Taco Bell. <laughs> it's not so much the what that appears on the plate, but the legacy and the tradition of what made that whole experience, that plate, that dish, is, is what I'm hearing you say. Yes, and Escoffier in 1905 said something to the effect we have to give up wood and coal in our kitchens because it's killing the cooks, the yeah. fumes are killing the cooks. But, he said, as soon as we do, the food will never taste that great again. A month ago, I was in a fishing village called Cisal in the Gulf of Mexico, just north of here in Merida. And there was a, an old fisherman, he was 70 years old, and he said, you know, I'm enchanted with fishing, with fish. I've been doing it for 55 years, and there's nothing more satisfying than, and of course he had my favorite fish, which was bocanetti or hogfish, but he's the most favorite fish in the Gulf of Mexico. And he was cooking over a wood fire in the back, uh, and next to it was a, a gas stove. And I said, why don't you use the gas stove? I mean, I knew the answer, sort of. He said, because the wood fire is the right temperature, it's the most gentle. You can't use violence in food. Oh. Yeah. How about that? Wow. And then, of course, there was the smoke and everything. So it's the most gentle heat. And, of course, the fish was the most crisp on the out, outside with the most creamy, moist, wonderful on the inside I'd ever have. And I eat that every weekend. Wow. Wow. But not realize that it's that thinking of that about Escoffier, it's not just, that's not romantic. Not just purely romanticism, though I hope there's a lot of that. In the project we're doing for the Aspen Institute of Mexico, it's actually preserving the ancient and perfect flavors of the past so that there is a future, so that our children and grandchildren don't die of boredom. Wow. Um... When That's we have conversations about the future of food, which we're privileged to do, and we're doing it in the realm of the metaverse, and we talk about NFTs, I've been fortunate to be invited to sit on the NFT Foundation Board right. and was charged with cultivating edible NFTs. And everybody says, well, what's an edible NFT? I said, exactly. <laughs> we haven't invented them yet, and I'm going to. When we talk about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and the future and, and AR and VR and AI and the tech of the future that's going to empower us and enable us to do the unthinkable and the unimaginable. It's exciting, for sure. Very exciting, but it, there's no magic wand here. You know, though there are, I mean, the new equipment and how to cook and the energy for that. And yes, all amazing stuff, but there's no magic wand. It's still finding the perfect healthful oyster and knowing what to do with it. To me, the balancing act has to involve writing the algorithm. Yes. Everybody's writing algorithms, right? Right into the algorithm. What sensibility, Irresistible? Yes. What else do we have to write into that algorithm? Fun. Oh, my God. You're so right. Having fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Smiling. Mm -hmm. Bringing that smile that nobody can wipe off their face when they eat that thing. I am so thrilled that we've had this time together. You're incredibly generous. Food and Beverage Magazine and our readers, thank you. I thank you. I can't wait till we're in the same room together again so Absolutely. I can hand you this glass that you have more than earned right now uh, and deserve the glass of champagne that we poured at the beginning. And I'm going to ask you if you would be so good. Help us perform a ritual, a ritual, a toast how has your sense of toasting to a moment 
this moment, this post-pandemic food 3.0 future of food moment inspired you to offer a toast that we will share with everyone in the audience and with our readers. How would you toast us with champagne at this moment? I would say let's, let's trust each other again and cook as well as you can. Cheers. Thank you Cheers. so much, Chef. Thank you, my dear. You're fabulous. Always have been. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, or wherever fine books are sold.